It was a random misstep in 2018 that finally forced me to pause and ponder my place on the border. It happened while I was running errands north of the border, 40 miles from Tijuana, in the parking lot of a 7-Eleven. One minute, I was paying for a cup of coffee. The next minute, I had tripped and was lying in the parking lot, moaning in pain. My right ankle needed surgery and a metal plate. I'd have to keep it elevated above my chest for at least six weeks. Self-reliance had carried me through tough times in the 25 years I'd been living and working on the border. But that wasn't an option now. I needed help. I'm Sandra Dibble, and this is the final episode of Border City, a podcast from the San Diego Union-Tribune. It's about Tijuana, a city known for violence, drugs, and migration into the United States. But it's also about a city where I, like so many others, have found a place and a purpose. A city of exuberance and hope. Time changes everything everywhere, of course. But here, at an international crossroad, changes are often driven by forces far away. A humanitarian crisis in Africa, poverty and violence in Central America, drug demand and migration policies in the United States. And when a pandemic sweeps the entire globe, the border makes everything more complicated. After I broke my ankle, I couldn't shop or cook. So I signed up for Meals on Wheels and paid a neighbor to look in on me once a day. If something fell to the ground, it stayed there until she arrived. But then friends started showing up at my door. Friends from San Diego brought food and stayed to visit. Friends from Tijuana crossed the border to take me to physical therapy, to bring me lunch, make me breakfast, or just to keep me company. Three of my danzón companions, Mirna, Rebecca, and Temok, moved in with me for an entire weekend. As I lay on the couch, they cooked, they cleaned, they danced. Looking back, I still can't say exactly what it was that drew me to the border all those years ago. But here were the reasons I stayed. These people on both sides of the fence who picked me up when I stumbled and fell. In 2018, Tijuana looked very different than when I arrived in 1994. The population had doubled to nearly 2 million people. The city was more complicated and more cosmopolitan. New condo towers were changing the skyline. Sports fans from both sides of the border packed the Cholo Soccer Stadium. Big, boisterous crowds cheered the Lucha Libre fighters in the municipal auditorium. The food scene was exploding. Everything from high-end restaurants to trendy food trucks, craft breweries and fancy coffee shops. Even traditional street food drew praise from the prestigious Culinary Institute of America. We're here right now at Taqueria Frank. This is one of the most oldest and most known taquerias here in Tijuana. Yet even as the business districts flourished, the violence was spiking in other parts of the city. 
Much of it was driven by the growing street trade in crystal methamphetamine. Working-class neighborhoods were hit hardest. Places where families struggled to raise their children while low-level drug dealers fought to control street corners. Violence hit an all-time high that year with more than 2,500 homicides, nearly three times as many as a decade earlier when it seemed the violence couldn't get any worse. The state homicide chief told me only about 12% of the cases were being solved. In the fall of 2018, I covered a story so big that it turned the eyes of the world to Tijuana for weeks on end. It began when a couple hundred people gathered in the Honduran city of San Pedro Sula and set out for the U.S. border. More people joined until they formed a massive caravan that moved through Guatemala, then into Mexico. President Donald Trump called it an invasion. He ordered more than 5,000 troops to the U.S.-Mexico border. We are sending a simple message to the lawless caravans and to the illegal trespassers marching toward our border. It's very simple. Turn back now. Go back home. We will not let you in. We are not going to let you in. Turn back now. By the end of November, close to 6,000 migrants had arrived in Tijuana. The first large group arrived on buses at a soup kitchen near downtown. Almost immediately, hundreds of them set out for a symbolic place, the beach where the border fence dips into the Pacific Ocean. Photographer Nelsa Peta and I caught up with them on their five-mile hike down a busy highway. Some carried backpacks. Others pushed strollers. Once they reached the beach, some teenagers scaled the tall bollards that formed the border fence. As a line of Border Patrol officers watched, some jumped down onto U.S. soil and quickly climbed back up the fence. They seemed so confident, so hopeful. They had reached their destination. Almost. Down on the sand, caravan members told me about the gangs back home that ruled by terror and demanded extortion payments about governments too weak and corrupt to protect them. They said they were poor and struggling to put food on the table. They seemed like people with nothing to lose. But they also spoke of their dreams, and those were boundless. A piano teacher from San Pedro Sula hoped to hear jazz in New York City. A welder from Guatemala dreamed of moving to France. Each had a story to tell an individual reason for leaving home. One man told me he was a farmer and evangelical pastor back in Honduras. It hadn't rained and his crops were dying. As the crowd grew, he sang me a hymn. For all the excitement of that day, it's that quiet moment that still stays with me. Tijuana wasn't equipped to deal with so many migrants at once. A downtown sports facility was converted into a shelter. But when it rained, the shelter became a sopping, muddy mess, and people started getting sick. The migrants grew desperate. The Trump administration was accepting no more than 100 asylum applicants at San Isidro each day, often far fewer. They realized they would not automatically get into the U.S. At best, 
they'd have to wait for months just to submit applications. A couple days after Thanksgiving, tensions rose. Several hundred people marched to the border near the port of entry. The idea was to peacefully persuade U.S. authorities to speed up the asylum process. But then, some of them charged through lines of Mexican police. They ran across a concrete channel and tried to force their way through a gap in the fence. A few hurled rocks. where thousands of migrants from that caravan have now arrived, some of them breaking through Mexico's police lines in Tijuana. U.S. border officers fired tear gas, forcing them back. You can hear the rounds being fired. And it is a tense situation here right now. These Mexican police in riot gear pushing this group of migrants back. They are yelling at the officers, angry because they say that tear gas injured two children earlier today. Two months later, the Trump administration made it even harder for asylum seekers from Central America. The Department of Homeland Security has begun to implement what is really a sweeping transformation in the way that asylum seekers are processed at the border. They call the policy migrant protection protocols, but most people called it remain in Mexico. Even those who managed to pass the first U.S. screening would now have to go back to Mexico while their cases were reviewed. That meant more months or even years of waiting. In 2019, another group of asylum seekers began arriving in Tijuana. There were hundreds of them, not thousands, and they came from somewhere I had never expected. The singers were from Cameroon in Central Africa, a country of roughly 25 million people. They traveled by bus, plane, and foot to get to the border, through Africa, Europe, and Latin America. I met with some of the Cameroonians at a small hotel close to the border. They were staying there while they waited to apply for asylum. They came from the western part of Cameroon, where the French-speaking government is fighting English-speaking separatists. Human rights violations have been rampant there. To break the ice, I asked the Cameroonians what kind of music they listened to back home. They sang in Swahili, but spoke to me in English. A man named Kennedy told me there was one place where he thought he could find safety— one place in the world. We want to get to the U.S. That is your dream? Yeah. At huh. times, we, 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 it's like we are stuck. We are confused. We don't know where we are heading to. It's like we need to take some decisions. It's like we have no way to go now. And the journey we took, if you ask somebody, is there a way to go back? It's just one way. No return ticket from the jungle to all the countries we moved through. It's just one way. 
Kennedy had studied law, worked in a credit union, and owned some farmland. But as tensions rose in his country, his life unraveled. His crops were stolen. He was beaten and imprisoned. Fearing for his life, he fled Cameroon. He learned later that his wife had been arrested, then released because she was pregnant. His native village had been burned down. Kennedy led me to a small terrace outside his hotel room. He pointed north towards some buildings we could see on the other side of the border. That is the United States flag. Where? Are you seeing this little one, this pole standing? Yeah. A little bit. I see it. Yeah. I see it. So we get up every morning, we make sure that flag is still there. Because that's our dream. Moving inland to the United States. I asked Kennedy, what gave him the faith and the strength to keep going? They say your fear is your only courage. My family house has been burnt, and the only way I could get a more tougher security is to move to the state. The only strength I have is the courage my wife used to give me. That move on. Move on. When you're safe, we are safe. And I know when I'm safe, I'm going to bring them over. So I have no choice. A few days after we spoke, I watched Kennedy join a crowd of migrants waiting by the San Isidro border crossing. Everyone was listening intently, hoping to hear their names or numbers called so they could walk into the U.S. and file asylum petitions. The scene reminded me of a train station crowded with anxious passengers, fearful of being left behind. Then I saw Kennedy step up, wearing a green sweatshirt and carrying a large backpack. He disappeared into the port. He didn't look back. Most of my encounters with migrants over the years have been fleeting, like my meeting with Kennedy. I interview them in Tijuana and then they leave. Even if we exchange phone numbers, we soon lose touch. I rarely know how their lives play out. But one family that has crossed into the United States is part of my personal life the three daughters of my old friend Angela, who died of cancer in 2005. Now, in 2021, we're still in touch. Growing up, the girls all had border crossing cards. They allow Mexicans living in border communities to enter the U.S. for a limited time. The girls usually came to San Diego to shop or to visit me. They'd never considered moving away from Tijuana. But as Angelita, Griselda, and Teresa grew into women and had children of their own, their circumstances changed. Poverty, violence, and bad relationships plagued their lives. And with their mother gone, they lost their strongest reason to stay in Tijuana. So one by one, the sisters walked across the border and disappeared into the vast U.S. workforce of undocumented migrants. They found low-paying jobs in California factories and packing plants at roadside taco stands, babysitting, cleaning offices at night, and they were profoundly grateful. Here in this great country that gave us the opportunity to come here, to have a better life, a new life that we didn't have before, I thank God for everything. That's Angelita. She works the night shift on an assembly line. On weekends, she sells tacos. Angelita was 14 years old when I met her. Now she's 40 and a single mother of five. She and Griselda share a two-bedroom apartment with four of Angelita's children. 
All the sisters call me Madrina. That means godmother. Their children do too. I've joined the family for birthdays and graduations, to eat cake and pozole, to honor a connection that has endured time and distance, sustained by the memory of a woman who offered me her friendship so many years ago. So when my birthday rolled around last year, it seemed only natural to ask Angelita if I could celebrate it with them. We settled on Saturday, March 7 for the party. I was one of three guests of honor. When I arrived, Angelita and Griselda were in the kitchen, frantically chopping onions and cilantro for pozole and potato tacos, just like their mother taught them. Colorful Mexican banners flapped above a half-dozen tables they'd set up in the common space. Angelita's teenage son was warming up a big barbecue. Before long, the courtyard was filled with chatter and laughter. The third sister, Teresa, came with her partner, all smiles and with a gift in hand. Teresa's daughter came too, my namesake, Sanrita. She's a stylish young woman of 25 now with two children of her own. We talked, we sang, we danced. The teenagers checked their phones while the little children laughed and ran between the tables. The sisters know their life in the U.S. could unravel at any moment with a traffic stop, a workplace raid, a complaint from a neighbor, a child's misstep. But even with their lives so close to the edge, they seize on every occasion, just as their mother used to. When I left that night, we exchanged abrazos. I promised I'd be back soon for Sandrita's wedding in June. Those goodbyes now seem like a lifetime ago. Even as we were celebrating my birthday, COVID-19 was spreading through the world. Lives everywhere were turned upside down. Sandrita went ahead and got married, but it was a small outdoor wedding and I didn't go. I sent a gift and then sat on my couch and looked at photos of the ceremony on Facebook. COVID-19 transformed lives on both sides of the border. Land ports of entry remained open to essential travel by U.S. citizens and permanent residents. But Mexicans with U.S. border crossing cards couldn't cross. And all asylum interviews were canceled, even for those who had already begun the process. One day, Esther Morales sent me a text that could have been written by any struggling restaurant owner anywhere in the world. She's the woman who opened a little restaurant in Tijuana a decade ago after she was deported from the U.S. I am afraid these streets are empty, Esther wrote. What happened? Oh, I am afraid, very afraid. In June, I drove to Tijuana to interview Esther at her empty restaurant. I set up a microphone stand on one of her two tables so we could stay six feet apart while we talked. Esther told me that in the first days of the pandemic, she felt helpless. 
los primeros días nadie había. Entonces, I said, okay, I'm going to stay open because what I'm going to do at home, there was nobody. The first days, no one, no one, no one. All this filled me with terror. What will happen? We are going to die. I had 1,000 questions that had no answers. But Esther found a way to keep going. She stepped up her volunteer work at the migrant shelters, places where she'd found refuge after she was deported from the U.S. She took them her famous tamales and rice and beans from a sister in Los Angeles. When a nonprofit called Al Otro Lado heard what she was doing, it began paying for the tamales. I said, I'm not going to be defeated. I never liked that, to give up. The day I visited her, Esther was feeling upbeat. Tijuana had eased its restrictions on restaurants, and she was going to reopen the following weekend. I told her I'd be there to record the moment for this podcast. It would be one more example of her persistence and survival. But then, one of Esther's friends called me with some chilling news. Esther had gone to the restaurant that morning to set out bouquets of roses for the opening. A distant relative, a woman who had recently been deported from the U.S., came in with two men demanding money. Esther said no. So the woman grabbed a knife and stabbed Esther in the neck. Doctors saved her life by inserting a tube into her throat to help her breathe. She spent a month in the hospital. But here's where the good part of the story begins. The community Esther had built over the years rallied to support her. Her daughter drove down from Los Angeles. Friends raised money to help pay her expenses. Al otro lado made sure she got the care she needed. And a small migrant shelter, one of the places where she'd been delivering tamales, took her in while she recovered. It all reminded me of something Esther had said the last time we talked about what she'd learned during her 10-year struggle to survive in Tijuana. It taught me that I have to work hard, otherwise I don't eat. It taught me that I have to have friends, because I'm alone in the city. It taught me that the struggle is daily, and constant, constant, constant. Tijuana isn't where Esther would have chosen to end up, but it's where she now chooses to be. It's where she rebuilt her life a day at a time and changed the path of her own story. Because everything, everything starts with a story. It's like a couple that adores each other. Why? Because they have a story. My story is that I was lost. And here, I pull myself up. And here is where I celebrate my success. Right here. As the world focused on the pandemic, the violence continued in Tijuana. An aggressive new group from central Mexico moved in, challenging the dominant Sinaloa cartel. Remnants of the Arellanos were also around. With no group fully in charge, the drug world was in disarray. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, had vowed to take a different approach to the cartels. That was one of López Obrador's campaign slogans. It means hugs, not bullets. Instead of taking on the cartels, he would tackle the root causes of crime, poverty and corruption. But violence is like a fire that Mexico can't seem to put out. For 26 years, I've watched the flames flare in Tijuana, then recede. 
only to return with a vengeance. In 2020, homicides topped 2,000 for the third year in a row. So why do you think the killings have gone up so high, and why can't anybody control that? I'm talking with human rights activist Victor Clark, who for decades has monitored the shifting dynamics in the city's underworld. Because really, Tijuana is is under the control, not of the authority, but on the control of the drug traffickers. After all these years working and living in Tijuana and San Diego, I have to confess that the border is still a riddle and a puzzle and a mystery to me. It's a heavily fortified barrier that tears families apart, yet it's also a bridge that connects two major cities. People whose lives straddle the border learn to live with these contradictions. They're known as fronterizos. They navigate different legal systems, political traditions, languages, and cultures. For them, the border isn't a line. It's a region. And what is a border person? We are, we have that, like, loving nature of of a Mexican, but we also have that individualism or that um, pragmatism of an American citizen. Like, we are not as traditional as people at the center of the country would be, but we are not totally different from them. So it's like an an hybrid of a Mexican and um, a border people. Like, we are border people. That's Luisa Ramos. She's in my kitchen as I write this final episode of Border City, fixing lentils for breakfast. Luisa is 19 years old and has lived at the border all her life. She was born and grew up in Tijuana, but it's a U.S. citizen through her father. Her aunt is journalist Dora Elena Cortez, one of the first friends I made when I arrived in Tijuana. So when Luisa enrolled at Southwestern College in San Diego County last year, it seemed only natural for her to move in with me. Luisa is a vibrant young woman with thick, curly hair that falls loosely around her shoulders. She favors colorful Mexican blouses. She plays the piano and sings alto. She's disciplined and thinks a lot about the future. Maybe she'll be an environmental engineer and try to solve Tijuana sewage treatment problems. Or maybe she'll pursue a career in music. Luisa and I talked one day at Dorelena's house in Tijuana. We sat at the dining table while her mother and aunt chatted in the next room. Do you want to uh, build a life in the U.S. or in Mexico? I think both of them. Like, I'm used to living here, and I like it. I really like it. It's just my place, right? And the culture and everything I've ever built isn't here. But I know there are other opportunities outside. And the United States, of course, has a lot of opportunities hanging out there. And I can take them. On weekdays, Luisa and I spend a lot of time together in my apartment because of the pandemic. She takes Zoom classes, does homework, and practices the piano. I work on this podcast fix our lunch, and take long walks to clear my head. In our free time, we do something together. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And now do your glissandos. That's Luisa and me practicing for an all-female vocal ensemble that's struggling to get started during the pandemic. We call ourselves Meraki, 
a modern Greek word that means doing something with soul and passion. Okay, so this is my note. Your note is... Our leader is Daria Abreu, a Cuban woman who now lives in Tijuana and leads choruses there. Because of COVID-19, we can't meet in person, so we rehearse on Zoom. Daria sets exacting standards. Luisa is helping me meet them. Even after all these years, the border's broad reach still takes my breath away. A musician from Cuba, singers from Tijuana, and now Luisa and me rehearsing together in my U.S. apartment. All of us joined by the magic of music and the possibilities of this busy crossroad that we share. So now, a full year has passed. Here I am at the end of 2021, still filled with wonder at Tijuana, and still wondering what comes next. I came here with no clear purpose, and never intending to stay. But then, I found a story I wanted to write. And then, another, and another. And suddenly, more than a quarter century had passed. There's now a new president in the White House, Joe Biden who has lowered the anti-migrant rhetoric. But many migrants in Tijuana remain stranded. Their hopes of making it across the border into the United States seem no greater than before. I've been following these developments from a distance because I retired from the Union Tribune last year. But I'm still living on the border, which, in a way, has become my own story. The story of how a restless and unsettled woman felt embraced by a restless and unsettled city. A city that's continually replenished and challenged by new people, by new ideas, and by new generations meeting the future. This place has taught me to keep going, to remain hopeful, and not to fear change. I don't know where the rest of my life will take me, but I do know this, that wherever I go, I'm not leaving Tijuana because I've become a part of it just as it is now a part of me. Border City was reported, 
written and created by me, Sandra Dibble. Susan White was my editor and co-creator. Our associate producers were Elise Anoush Manukian and Hafsa Fatima. Kurt Conan and AMFM Music provided original music and sound design. Joanne Farian and Garage Media offered production support. Our theme song, Tierra Mestiza, was composed by Gerardo Tamez and performed by Mexico City-based Los Folkloristas. Thanks to Promotora Bellas Artes for the recording of the Meraki Chorus in Tijuana singing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Thank you to Mariana Martinez Estens, who read the voice of Angelita, and to Lilia O'Hara, who read the voice of Esther Morales. Thank you to Tijuana-based videographer Jordi Lebrija, who provided news clips for the caravan, and to PBS's Batis Mexican Table and the Culinary Institute of America for their clips. Mm-hmm.